Well, good morning again. Welcome if you're visiting with us this morning, family in town. Glad to have all of you today. Uh, we are going through a section of the Bible called the Psalms, and within that we're in a part called the Psalms of Ascents. Today we are at Psalm 132. Uh, these are songs that God has given us to teach us how to worship Him, to teach us how to pray, how to bring uh, to Him all of our experiences and our desires and our emotions. Uh, we, if you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, you're on page 519. We're at Psalm 132, page 519. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in a pastra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. Father, we ask for you to bless the reading and the preaching of your word uh, so that we might clearly understand what it's saying to us, both in what makes us uncomfortable and in what encourages us. Use all of it, Lord, for all of its purposes to transform us. And as you transform us, Lord, use us as your servants in this world this beautiful fallen creation, looking forward to its redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I went by a house uh, a few blocks away from my house. It had this really big sign out in the front yard, almost like a, a billboard. Uh, it said, Peace on earth begins with you. Uh, some of the Christmas cards we've gotten in the last few weeks speak generically about love or about joy. Uh, one of them talked about being so very merry. Uh, somebody that I happen to know is very much not merry at all. Uh, all of them, and like the, the neighbor's sign, they're expressing good desires for good things. But the real question is where they come from and how you get them. According to the Bible, peace on earth involves us 
But it doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. Something like this is what's going on in Psalm 132. It's recounting David's well-intentioned but misplaced confidence that he could be the one to bring about the blessings of God's presence on earth. But then in the psalm in the middle shows how God responds to him with a promise that God himself would be the one to bring about the blessings of his presence on earth. And then it ends by describing what those blessings are like, what it means for us and for our world. The gospel account of Matthew tells us that when God was conceiving Jesus in the womb of Mary, this was fulfilling an ancient prophecy in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, that the Messiah, God's anointed king to rule over the world, that God's Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew phrase that means God is with us. So as the psalm is showing us the blessing of God's presence on earth, it's also, it worked out well this way for our calendar, it's also showing us the significance of Christmas. Psalm 132 is showing us why we should care so much about how in the miracle of the incarnation, God becoming human, how in that miracle, God has come to dwell among us. Uh, you know, the, story, the movie of Charlie Brown at Christmas, the whole thing is him trying to figure out what is Christmas all about? Why, why should I care about this? Uh, at the end, he hears Luke chapter 2 about Jesus being born. You could have just as well read to him Psalm 132 and said, here's what Christmas is about. Here's the real meaning of it. Uh, I've got three pieces of it for you today. Uh, First of all, we see the need for God's presence. That's in verses 1 to 10. And then we see the means of God's presence. That's verses 11 to 14. And then finally, we see the blessing of God's presence, verses 15 to 18. The psalm starts with the need for God's presence, verses 1 to 10. Uh, We've been saying over the last couple months, as we've been going through this part of the Psalter, that the psalms of ascents revolve around God's people making this long and often discouraging journey up to their true home in Jerusalem. The Bible teaches us that our true home is with God in heaven and that one day our true home will return to be here on earth with us. The Bible calls our home the new Jerusalem because for the thousand years before Jesus was born, The physical Jerusalem was the center of God's presence and activity on earth, of everywhere on the planet, of all the different groups of people. God chose one group of people, and he chose one place in particular to be uniquely present. Uh, The reason that Jerusalem for a thousand years was the center of God's activity and presence on earth is because of what this psalm is telling us, what it's recounting for us. King David was God's chosen king. He was, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart who after many years of suffering, many years of chaos, he established his throne and then he settled down in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, You hear about it in more detail in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, But there and here too, David realizes, and it's an admirable desire, David realizes that he needs God at the very center of his kingdom. And so he goes out and he finds this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, so that he could bring it into Jerusalem to be there with him. Uh, Now, some of you will remember that the Ark of the Covenant is the most important object in the life and the worship of Israel. 
Uh, It was a gold-plated box that contained copies of the Ten Commandments. God promised to be present on top of that box in a very unique way, in a way that he's not present anywhere else in the universe. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, uh, for the time that it existed under the Old Testament, it was hidden from almost everybody almost all the time. Uh, The only time that anybody got to see it was once a year when one man named the high priest would go into a room where this box was hidden and he would sprinkle sacrificial blood on top of it to cover over and cleanse Israel's sins. And so with all of this, it sounds very strange to us today, but the point of it is that God is showing us that he's holy. He's showing us that he's unique, that he's clean, that he's pure, and that he's willing to forgive the sins of his repentant but unclean people so that he could continue to dwell among them, to be present with them without destroying them, which is what they deserve. It would be something like if we walked into the center of a nuclear reactor, we would instantly die because it would be so overwhelmingly powerful. This is what God is like and how God describes himself in the Bible. You cannot just roll into my presence and expect nothing to happen given who you are and what you have done against me. So David desires to bring this box into Jerusalem. He desires to build a physical building, a temple, to house it. And again, this is a good desire. The psalm begins by calling God to remember this about David. Uh, It says, remember how David, in spite of all his suffering, remember that he understood that your presence to be so important that he made this really hardcore vow to the mighty one of Jacob. He said, I'm not going to sleep. He's probably speaking a bit... uh, exaggerated but he says i'm not going to sleep until i find a place for the lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of jacob and so you can see that david who himself was a mighty warrior david loves the lord as the great and mighty warrior of all victories and all battles the warrior who had won all of his battles for him ultimately so david seeks to be near him he seeks to lead all of god's people to be near to him Uh, In verse 6, you can see how David leads the people to see their need for God's presence with them. Uh, It describes how at David's encouragement, the people went out looking for this box. It had been sitting collecting dust for 20 years because the people weren't sure what to do with it and they were kind of afraid of it because of its unique status uh, as the place where God was present. uh, People realized very quickly that if you didn't handle it correctly, people would start dying. But David leads the people to go out and find it, to bring it into Jerusalem. It says that we heard of it in a pathra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at God's footstool. Uh, The Bible says that figuratively speaking, that Ark of the Covenant is the one spot on earth, so to speak, where God is present. It's where he rests his feet because he's living up in heaven, uh, so to speak. Uh, He doesn't actually have feet, of course, but uh, you can think of it as uh, the one spot on earth. He puts his feet there. That's the, the, the highest spot on earth, the lowest spot of heaven, if you want to think of it that way. And so it's great that David and now all the people desire to have God's presence with them. Uh, he knows and they know because he's helping them to learn it. They know what a blessing it is to have a forgiving but mighty God at the very center of your life, at the very center of your society. In verse 9, they describe what this blessing is like. Instead of there being decadence, And depression, uh, like they and we so often experience all around us and among us, uh, they say, when God is present with you and when God is at the center of your lives, 
there's righteousness. There's joy. Uh, it says there that it's not just that the leaders of, of their worship are going to be righteous in the private confines of their own hearts. Uh, in the modern world, we often think that religion is something very private, has nothing to do with real life. Uh, instead, it says that the priests are going to be clothed with righteousness. They did wear special physical clothing, uh, but these people are saying it's not just that they're going to have special clothes on that look nice, it's that their very lives are going to express the righteousness that God desires. The integrity of their hearts will be visible to everybody because of the way they speak and the way they act. And then it says it's not just that God's beloved people are going to be happy every once in a while, uh, but it says uh, emphatically that they will exuberantly shout for joy. God's people will be glad to live in his world with him and under him. But then verse 10, I don't know if you caught this. Verse 10 sounds something of an ominous note. It says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one, literally your Messiah. There's this concern that Israel's anointed king might come under the displeasure of God. Uh, even David himself did this. You can read about it in Second Samuel. Uh, at various points later in his life, uh, he, he disobeyed God, and God uh, brought serious consequences on him. Uh, just about every one of David's own descendants uh, did the same things during their uh, almost universally sad and wayward reigns. So the psalm starts with recounting the good and the admirable desire of David and the people that they could usher in God's presence on earth, but it has this tension about whether or not God's anointed king would continue to enjoy his presence. And so that's why it's such good news that verse 10 moves on from David's good but misguided vow that God's presence would begin with him. Now you hear of a much better and a much bigger vow. Now God says, my presence doesn't begin with you. The blessing of having me around doesn't begin with you, David, as great as you are. It begins with me. Uh, that's what happens in Second Samuel chapter 7 after David gets the box into Jerusalem. Uh, David immediately has this great idea to build a temple, to house it. But then God comes to him through a prophet and says, do you think you're going to build me a house? God says, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. He says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a better house. It means I'm going to prom I promise to give you a royal dynasty, uh, a line of descendants who will never, ever end. Uh, and through your dynasty, he says to David, I will bring my blessing and my peace to the entire world for all peoples. And so the psalm now describes God's greater promise. You move from the need for God's presence, which David recognized admirably, now to the means of God's presence. How? Does God dwell among his people so as to bless them? We know that we need it, but how does it happen? Uh, look at verses 11 to 14. It shows us the way that God dwells among his people. You see there that the way he does this is with a king. God dwells among us as a king. With David, God promises to his creation, uh, God's promises to his creation now shift into a new key, into a royal key. Uh, things are going to be done in a kingly way from now on, beginning with David. Uh, another way to say this is that you cannot have God's presence, you cannot have God's blessing without having God's king. There's no other way 
to find God or to enjoy God other than through his king. Uh, You can see in verse 11 that God's promise is unbreakable. It says that the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which God will not turn back. There's this worry about God turning away from his king and then God says, I'm going to swear this oath that's going to be so permanent that I'll never ever turn away from it. He swears that he will put David's descendants on the throne in Jerusalem and that they will stay there, verse 12, they will stay on that throne as long as they obey God. So again, it raises this huge question. How can God's promise remain unbroken if it depends on the behavior of his anointed king? David himself was the high watermark of Israel's kings and his own life was marked by a great deal of failure and disobedience. It's all downhill from there. Until you get to Jesus. Uh, The gospel accounts are very careful to tell us. They go out of their way to show us and to tell us that Jesus is the direct descendant of David. And as we heard earlier in the service, the angel Gabriel, uh, when announcing to Mary that God would give her a son, specifically says that God's going to give him the throne of David, the throne of his father David. Before Jesus, David's disobedient descendants had been evicted from the throne and from Jerusalem. But Gabriel now says that Mary's son will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So in Jesus, you can see how and why God's sure oath to David could remain in force. Unlike any of us, Jesus always obeyed God, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how much it cost him. Paul says in Galatians 4, I read most of this to you earlier, he says in Galatians 4 that just at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, there's Mary, born under the law, the Old Testament system of Israel, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus keeps the law of God perfectly in the face of every single temptation, every kind of temptation, the Bible says. The Apostle Paul says in another one of his letters, he says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He is the heir of Jesus of God's promises, uh, including God's promises to help David, God's promises to forgive his sinful people. Jesus is the yes to all of these promises because of the perfection of who he is and what he's done, especially his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So in Jesus we can confidently see, we can confidently know that God will never turn away his face from his anointed one, from his king. God's oath is a sure oath. It's not because of you, because of Jesus. And because Jesus is the rightful and perfect heir, the rightful and perfect claimant to all of God's promises, That means that God can and will dwell among his sinful but forgiven people forever. You can see that in verses 13 and 14. This link now, this explicit link between the king and God's people getting to be with God. 
It says that God's king will be on David's throne because the Lord has chosen Zion. That's another way to describe Jerusalem as the place where God lives. God has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. I will dwell here for I have desired it. God promises to put an obedient king on the throne of David because that's the way, that's the one way that God's present with and among his fallen sinful creation. And it's always been this way. God created our world. He created us so that we could not have him without having his human king. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was supposed to be this glorious king under God and for God, ruling over all of God's creation. This is what makes humans so special. You are not the accidental outcome of pond sludge getting zapped by lightning. You are, the Bible says, you are made in God's image. You are supposed to be kings and queens over his whole world with Adam as the head over you. But Adam fails miserably, just like David and his descendants did. So you can see what makes Christmas, the incarnation, so wonderful. In and through Jesus, God forgives us. And so he is again with us. The perfect God is present among us. Not just in an abstract sense, like God is the force, and may the force be with you, and God's kind of this groovy thing that's just all around us. God's not present among you in an abstract way. God is present among you specifically as the perfect son of David. And so as the heir and the conduit of all of God's specific promises to David and behind David, God's specific promises to Moses and to Abraham and to Noah and to Adam. Kind of like the yard sign near my house, David thought that the blessing of the presence of God began with him. Verses 1 to 10. Good desire, David, but it's wrong. In Texas, you would say, bless your heart, David. He saw the need for God's presence, but then in verses 11 to 14, God responds by saying, no, uh, the blessing of my presence begins with me. And the way that I'm going to be present is by sending a perfect Davidic king. That's the means of God's presence. And so that takes you to verses 15 to 18, where God now lays out the blessing of his presence. What makes it so good to have God around? In Jesus, the perfect king, you now see that God's blessings are so much more than anything David or we could have arranged for ourselves. The most over-the-top saccharine desires that people put on their Christmas cards, it's nothing compared to how wonderful and how good it is uh, that God has a plan to bless this world. You can see it in verse 15 with this very emphatic Hebrew form underscoring God's blessing in and through his king. God says, I will abundantly bless her provisions abundantly not just a little bit not just a sprinkle a lot the word here for provisions is a specific word referring to the kind of stuff that you have to bring with you on a long journey god is so generous to give us so much more than the bare minimum that we need to get back to our true home with him in the new jerusalem listen to how the apostle paul 
talks about what God has given us through Jesus. Listen to how Paul, who was a very learned man, one of the most educated people in his generation, listen to how he struggles to find the words to express the extravagance of God's love. How wonderful it is to know God's love. Paul says this, May you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or all we think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory. So you can see Paul struggling to talk about how great it is and how wonderful it is. He can barely find the words. His grammar doesn't even make sense when you look at it in Greek because he's losing his train of thought just thinking about all these things and talking about them. In the psalm here in front of us, God promises that in and through his perfect king, I will abundantly bless her provisions. He says, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Our lack met by God's extravagant generosity. Especially in the coming new Jerusalem, Jesus will bring great physical abundance to this world. But he already satisfies us at the core of our being. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a wonderful promise to a world where people are so hungry for joy and for meaning and for life. Grasping at it as we put things on our Christmas cards. These longings for satisfaction and for purpose and for joy and for light. In verse 16, the psalm picks up the wish that we had heard earlier in verse 9 where God's people had expressed their longing for a community marked by integrity and joy. That returns here in verse 16. Here God says, Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. The word righteousness has now shifted into the more vivid and dramatic word salvation. God's going to rescue us. And the language about joy is even more emphatic here than it was before. Jesus' very name means the Lord saves. And it's in saving us from our sin and from all the misery that it causes that we have our greatest reason to rejoice. Now, but especially when we arrive in our heavenly home, we will rejoice forever and ever under the rule of King Jesus, under the rule of King the Lord saves. Against the backdrop of many weak and worthless kings in Israel, verse 17 gives this glorious promise that God would cause a horn to sprout for David. Uh, It's a statement about the strength of Jesus, the strength of his rule. But his reign would not merely be about might, it would also be glorious. We also hear here that his reign is described as a lamp, a light shining in the darkness of sin and suffering. And the final line here tells us that in complete contrast to the shame and the humiliation that's going to come to all those who oppose him, Jesus' own kingly crown will shine. Literally, it says it will blossom. This is the language you use for flowers. In Jesus, the power 
and the beauty of God join together in perfect harmony. And that's what makes the incarnation so wonderful. The blessing of God's presence does not begin with us. That's good news. It begins with God. His promises and his desires are so much better, so much greater than ours, no matter how well-intentioned they are. God has come to dwell among us in Jesus, great David's greater son. All of God's blessings are secure for those who trust in King Jesus, even as we make this painful and long journey to our heavenly home. Amen. Let's pray. Father, satisfy us with rich provisions for the journey home. Satisfy us with abundant grace, knowing that we are an undeserving people. Your desires are so much greater than ours. Even on our best day, we can't even come close to wanting as good of things and as wonderful of things as you do for us. So help us, Father, to submit to you, to rejoice in you. Even now, make us your priestly people whose very lives demonstrate the righteousness that you have already given us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' good and kingly name. Amen.